The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And so let's do that now as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people or imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived." Well, when the Bible talks about these last days, it's really referring to the period of time between Jesus' first coming and second coming. And sometimes, depending on what's going on in the world, it feels a lot more like the last days than, uh, than other times. And this isn't like this doomsday prep. It's not this doomsday passage of the, the end is near. But in a sense, the end is near. But this was written 2,000 years ago. And for them, it was near, recognizing that we are in kind of the final stage of of creation we're in the last days the final scene and the death the resurrection of jesus christ is really this the hinge of all of history it's because jesus is so world changing he's so world transforming and in Jesus' coming and and dying and resurrection from the grave he's saying to the world the old is gone and the new has come and so jesus is saying the new has come it has arrived and this is the final chapter the final act in God's play. And history is winding down, believe it or not, and we, we don't know how long it will take. We don't know how long these last days will last. And in this early church, they're receiving this letter. They, uh, they didn't know how long it was, and they lived and died, and then generations and generations after them came and went reading the same passages and wondering when it would all be, be over, when Jesus would return. And so we are ra- we're waiting for Jesus' return. We are in the last days, in this final this final chapter in God's story. And in these last times, Paul says, the writer of this letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, difficult times are ahead. Difficult times are here. You're going to face a lot of trouble. And so don't be surprised when when difficulty comes to you and your life and your ministry and, and as you pursue the gospel. Don't be surprised when things are hard. And so I want you to know that. Don't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when when it's difficult to uh, to live out the life that God has called us to live, to to guard the gospel in our own um, beliefs and in our work. 
And with these difficult times will come difficult circumstances. He lists them out. You'll see you know, these 18 or so characteristics of difficult time listed in verses 1 to 5. And there's a lot of negativity in these verses if you really read them. We read them slowly. Uh, this isn't Paul just going on a rant. He's just not, Paul isn't just venting here, talking about all the bad that is in the world. He's not griping about the bad. It's here that Paul is wanting to clarify for Timothy, his, his protege pastor, who he's passing the baton of ministry to, He's wanting to communicate to him that, Timothy, there really is two ways to live. There's two ways to live, and I want to encourage you and exhort you to to be aware of of these two ways to live and to not abandon the gospel and to not be tempted in other ways to live. We will live as lovers of God on the one hand, or we will live as lovers of something else. And that's what Paul talks about in this passage. There's several, several characteristics of these different loves, loves of lovers of God and and lovers of these other things that he lists. And then there's also a remedy for these misguided loves. And anything that we love that we put in the place of loving God and ultimately worshiping God and following him is a misguided love. It's taking something good that God's given to us and abusing it and and, and, and misappropriating it. And that has consequences and, and there's also a remedy for that. But first he mentions these three loves. And then we'll get to what it looks like to be a lover of God. But first, he talks about these misguided loves, and I want to I wanna bring your attention to those one by one. First, it's the lover, the love of self, being lovers of self. This is, this is just known in, as narcissism. This is one of the, the ways that we will be tempted to, to depart from God and the true gospel. We will love ourselves. Maybe in middle school you remember you know, where we got this word narcissism from. It's from the Greek myth of a of a beautiful uh, man named Narcissus. He was beautiful and he was sad because he wandered all of God's creation looking for a perfect compatible mate, a beautiful woman who he can love and be loved by. And he was sad because he couldn't find anyone that met up to his standards. And so one day in his, in his exhaustion and his weariness, he reclined by a riverbed and looked into the water to grab a drink and it was there that he fell in love and finally found the most beautiful person in the world, his own reflection. He saw himself and he fell in love. And he was so consumed with his, his ego and his love for himself that he was blind to the reality that it was his own reflection that, he was, that was staring back at him. And, and it, the myth is that he turned into a flower at the riverbed because he stayed there for so long. And that's why you'll far, find those flowers, the the narcissus flower, right? Commonly growing by riverbeds. Call this the God complex. The God complex happens when we take a good desire, the desire to be loved, the desire to have affection put on us, and we turn it into an idolatrous desire, and we call it a need. And so our need, our desire to be loved by others becomes this need that we take God and his glory and his self and his authority off of the throne of our life and we put ourselves there and we we center everything around our lives and our need to be loved and need to have affection from others we put ourselves at the center of our lives and when we do this we demand from others sometimes unknowingly that people will notice us that they will pay attention to us that they will love us that they will praise us that they will make everything about us and we don't even know it when it happens but we desire this so bad that we we love ourselves so much. The love of self can look a different, a different, in different ways. It can look like American individualism. 
Individualism is, is when instead of looking to God's word for the norm of our guide, we look to our own experience. And so when the question comes up, what does God have to say about this topic or another, we immediately think the first thing that comes in our mind is, well, what would I do if I were God in this situation? And we think of our experience. We say, how would God act? And we think, well, how would I act? And then however we think we might act in that situation, then God must therefore act in that way. And so we then make God in our image. And we shape God's wisdom and his character after our wisdom and character. And if we can think it, then it must be true for God. And if we can't fathom God acting, uh, ourself acting in a certain way, then God really can't act in that way either. If God were me, what would he do? I don't know if you've asked that question explicitly, but you've probably felt it before. I couldn't imagine God ever doing that. And what you really mean is you couldn't imagine yourself ever doing that. And this kind of misguided love doesn't ever allow anyone to tell us that we're wrong. It never allows anyone to speak into our life and to correct us, to challenge us, to rebuke wrong behaviors or ideas. Because we would never hear it. Another misguided love that he gets into is the love of money immediately after, the love of money. Or this is materialism. It's one of those elementary influences in our life that corrupts the behavior because wealth and money and possessions, one of those things that, that make us way more confident in our ability than we really should be. Money can be a trap. Are you aware of how money can be a trap? For those who have money, here's the temptation for you. The temptation is that you will be tempted to be arrogant, to be arrogant thinking that because I'm successful, because I have earned money, because I have, I've got a promotion after promotion, because I am well esteemed in my field, because people look to me for how to do their job because I do it so well and I've made money, you will think that you're good at everything. Because you're successful with your job and with your money, then all areas of your life you are successful in. And you lose teachability. You stop growing as a person. And wealth tends to make us overconfident in ourself and overconfident in our ability. And, it, and this overconfidence creates a barrier for really hearing the truth of the gospel. And what does the gospel say? It's not because of anything that you've done or anything that you have or anything that you've accomplished, but because of what God has done for you and accomplished for you in your place and in spite of what you have done that makes you loved. And there's a misconception about this misguided love. A lot of times when we talk about the love of money, we look to wealthy people and we say they must struggle with the love of money. We look to people who have a lot of stuff and we say they struggle with the love of money. The misconception, the myth is that it's only wealthy people who struggle with the love of money. You don't have to have a lot of money to love it. Because even for the person without money, they just need a little bit more and then they'll be happy. They need a little bit more and then they could be generous. They need a little bit more and then they could feel that they've accomplished something in their life and they're valuable and they're a good person and they've made it. See, I'm not worthless. I, I, I got to that level. I have that much more. You don't have to have a lot to struggle with this. People don't often struggle with this because they don't think they, or they don't share about it, they don't think they struggle about it. I have people come in and talk to me about a lot of different things, a lot of different struggles. The struggles with uh, sexual sins, with lust, with, with anger. I have people come and, and talk with me a lot about anxiety and, and uh, control and depression, it's things that they're struggling with in their life. And I can't tell you a time where I remember when anyone ever came in and said, 
I'm really struggling with greed. I can't remember a single time. And it's not because we're, we're all very generous and we don't struggle with greed. It's because we don't think that we do. We don't think that money has this grasp on us. That we don't think that, that it really grips us the way that it does. In a few weeks, actually, I plan to do a, uh, we're planning to do this really short mini-series right before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving on, on generosity and pe- being people that, that have an overflow of the, the gospel of generosity in our life and to being generous with our money and with our possessions. And I'm going to make a prediction. It will be our lowest attended November ever. <laughs> but I really hope that it's not, and it really shouldn't be. And I invite you to be here for that. Because money can be a trap if we're not careful, and you should all come. And it's something I think that we don't think that we struggle with. But if we really searched our heart, we would, we would see that this is, has a grip on us, this love of money, this love of possessions and materialism, this love of, of even professionalism, of like attaining to a certain status in our life and career. And we say, that's why I'm important, because of what I have and what I do. It grips our hearts. A third misguided love that he gets into in this letter is the lovers of pleasure. The love of pleasure. The love is, this love is manifested in the idol of entertainment and consumerism. The love of pleasure puts our felt needs above our moral convictions. It's the common belief that says, let no one ever tell you the way that you feel is ever wrong. Because if you feel it, then it must be right for you, and it's okay. Your feelings are yours. Those are off limits of, for critique. No one can ever critique your feelings. Or it's seeing relationships merely as this, a personal use and gain. It's seeing a church or your spouse or a friendship that when our emotional and relational needs are no longer being met in that relationship, we move on to another one who can meet our emotional and relational needs. The love of pleasure is to say that how I feel becomes my leader, my influence, my guide in what to do in my life. And if I don't feel it, I won't do it. And if I feel it strongly enough, then I must give myself over to it. Self and money and pleasure. Let's talk about these. Self, money, and pleasure. Entertainment and possessions. These bad things, these aren't bad things. The self is of great value. We are made in the image of God, and, and, and we... We have an identity, and it's for this purpose that Christ died for us, to redeem who we are. He loves who we are. We are made in His image. Money is not a bad thing and is, is actually necessary. Pleasure is created by God. The world is full of good things given by God, but they are meant to be bridges to joy in God, not meant to be joys in themselves. And when we make them joys in themselves, it leads us to all kinds of evils. Today, when you get home and you plop down on the couch and, and you sit and you turn on the TV, and I want you to take mental note of the commercials that you watch. And I just want you to take mental note in, in, in regard to this passage and this sermon. My guess is that every commercial is going to be geared towards one of those loves. The love, the temptation to be, the temptation to love self, the temptation to be. Do you want to be not as bald? Right? Imagine what you could be. Do you want to be? They, picture, they paint this picture of the person that you want to be, and you say, I do want to be less bald. <laughs> Love of money. It's the temptation to have. Imagine how 
your life would be if you just had this, that you had this much more, that you had more of this or even had less of this. So you start to think about the temptation to, to have more. Yes, that is the answer. That's what, I, that's what I want to have in my life. That's what's missing in my life is to have that. I've never been to the sand dunes. I need an all-purpose vehicle. I need to have that. Don't you want to build memories with your family? Isn't family important? Hasn't God given you a family? You have a moral obligation to get one. Out of love for your family. What about love of pleasure? It is the temptation to feel. Selling you something or promoting something that will make you feel better about your current circumstance. Do you feel bad? Do you feel down? Do you feel, what do you feel? And that commercial is going to say, do you want to feel different than here? Every one, every commercial will be geared towards one of those loves. And it's not that those things are bad. But it's when the love of God is replaced by a love of those things that it breeds all kinds of evil behaviors. What are the, fruit, what are the fruits of these loves, these misguided loves? Well, they're quite shocking. If you take some time to consider each one of these evils that is listed in this passage, you'll agree that anyone who acts like this, you don't want to be friends with them. You don't want to be around people like that. You don't want to be a person like that. And you feel guilty and shame when you read that and you say, I see that in myself. You'll hopefully agree that the seeds of all of these vices and these evil behaviors are present in your own heart, hidden in there somewhere. And we should see that if we were honest with ourselves. Look at these. I just want to breeze through these to, to, to uh, bring your attention to them. Look at the first four. The first four of these fruits, they might be best described as, as just general selfishness. We see that um, proud and arrogant and abusive and, and, and disobedient to your parents. I'll give parents a second to nudge their child. Give you a second. I know you want to. See, see, be obedient to your parent. Now, parents, proud and arrogant and abusive. The temptation to, to make your life about yourself and disobedience to parents is chiefly a love of self. Is a love to say, no, I am in authority. No, I am the rule. No, no one tells me what to do. I am God in my life. But it also makes us proud and arrogant and abusive. The next four are a bunch of unwords, right? It's the ungrateful, the unholy, the, the heartless, or the unloving, or the unappeasable. These unwords is something that we need to see, and often we neglect when we think about evil works. It's not when we think about sin and what are the fruits of of a, of a ungodly life. We think of all the bad things to do. Well, what this says is, is it's not just the bad things that you do; it's actually the good things that you fail to do. I'm a good person. I don't do any of those bad things. But what do you fail to do that you ought to do? What behaviors are you are not being lived out? What, what absence of behavior is in your life? The ungrateful, unholy, unloving, un, unappeasable. You're never happy. You're never satisfied. You're, you're never content. A lack of contentment is evil and a fruit of the love of money 
and pleasure. The third group has to do with, with speech. Slanderous and lack of self-control. It's talking about self-control of the tongue and brutal and, and not loving good. When we lack self-control and we, we remove the filter from our mouth, we say, this isn't evil, this is just my personality. I just call it how it is. And the last group most likely deals specifically with these, these, these false teachers that have been coming into the church that Timothy ought to, ought to be very aware of and to correct and to, to handle well. Uh, and Paul gives a lot of instruction on how to, how to engage with them or to, to uh, correct them. It says their ego is so built and big and filled with so much conceit that they don't even consider the effects of their beliefs and actions on others. They are miserable and they make others miserable too. They use others for their own personal gain. They, they go into households and, and those who are undiscerning or weak in their will, they take, they're taken advantage of. For those who are hurting and those who are needy and those who are poor and those who are without protection, those who are vulnerable in our society are taken advantage of. And the presence of these is due to this replacing the love of God with the love of something else. You see that? There are two ways to live. And even though the prophet Jeremiah speaks of it well, actually, this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. He talks about this, that the presence of these are due to replacing a love of God with a love of something else. He says in Jeremiah 2, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so there's two evils going on here. The first evil is the sin of rejecting God, the sin of not loving God. But the second evil, which we fail to realize a lot of times, is the evil of turning to other things to love and to give us joy and to find our hope in. And sin always arises because we desire something more than God. It is a fundamental orientation towards self and not an orientation towards God. Everyone worships something or someone, and one's life is a spillover of that supreme love. And this is what Paul is getting at. No one is just neutral. No one is just kind of in orbit in life and just in this neutral place with God or with others or without consequence. We are either loving God, because whatever we worship, whatever we love, it spills over in a life. It's like, it's like a fountain, a fountain that is, that is full and overflowing. Whatever is feeding into that, it has to go somewhere. And as a fountain overflows, it touches everything in its path. So no one is neutral. We either love God or we love something else. But then there's a the love of God. Paul talks about this, the lovers of God. What does it mean to be a lover of God? Here's a quote from a Tim Chester's book, You Can Change. He says, God promises to meet our true needs, but we can't expect him to satisfy our selfish desires. God isn't a divine waiter ready to serve us whatever we want. God isn't the key to the good life, however I choose to define it. He defines the good life. He is the good life. God must be desired for his own sake, not as a purveyor of worldly success. And a key is found here in verse 5 where he talks about these people who are lovers of self and, and money and pleasure. He says that they, they have the appearance of godliness but without any power. They deny its power. And so they appear to be godly. To love God is to love Him, not His stuff. But for the joy of knowing that we are loved by Him in spite of our attempts to change or to do good works, 
and we only understand this, we only understand what it really means to, to love God, to, to live out a life of being a lover of God by, by looking at the cross. We only understand it when we look at the cross. Think about this. If God desired for us to impress Him with our good work and our behavior, with our stuff and our money and our pleasure and, and our, and our, and our uh, behavior, then why did He send His Son to die on the cross? God sent his son to die on the cross. He was separated from the Father. He, was, he bore the full weight of the wrath and punishment of God so that we could be accepted by God. And when we try to prove ourselves to God, we're saying, in effect, the cross was not good enough. The appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Many times the idea of godliness means giving up things. Think of a person who appears very godly. Well, maybe you're thinking of a person who has given up a lot of things, given up pleasure, denied themselves of pleasure, denied them th th themselves of privilege and, and position and stuff. They don't, they don't just buy a lot of things. They, uh, they, they, they deny themselves of opportunity, and they just live a very humble and quiet life. And instead of, uh, you think of someone just like a drab life. How can you know a person is a godly person. Well, they're, they're really miserable, right? Right? I mean, it's the sad, it's the really miserable people. Those are the godly people. You are so sad. How godly are you? You must be very spiritual. Not true. Not true at all. True godliness, but that's often how we think. A godly person, a lover of God. Well, they probably live a drab life because they, they're not pursuing pleasure or money or self and they're just kind of, uh. But true godliness stems from recognizing that the pleasures of sin are empty. That the pleasures of self and money, the love of self and money and pleasure are, are empty. They're deceitful. And God invites us into the full and true pleasure of the, of, that lasts forever in the true gospel. What is missing in those who love God but act like it? Real change the transforming power of God for a transformed life. The transforming power of God. You see, these people have all the answers, but there's an absence of a changed life. Their religion has all the right words, but they lack power. How do we know or others have, that others have been transformed by the power of the gospel, not merely pretending to be godly and holy? It's that a love for God will spill over into a life of humility and generosity and obedience to God's word. A steadfast and unshakable joy, no matter what circumstances are going on in their life. Because I'm, I'm free from the love of, of, of money and power and self and pleasure, that whatever's going on in the world, because I love God, I, I cling to Him in the midst of trouble. He is my hope. He is my joy. The gospel comes to us and, and changes us. And if we remain unchanged, then what we have is a, a powerless gospel, which is no gospel at all. If it's merely in words and merely in just confession and merely in just knowledge of biblical truth and yet have an unchanged life, then we, we're unbiblical. We don't believe it. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is not about knowing true things. It is about resting and being changed by the reality of God's good news for us. 
that it's not on our record, but Jesus' record. He offers the promise of life. This whole section may be, may be summed up like this. People have replaced the love of God with the love of self and the material world, appearing to be religious but not denying the power of the true gospel. Let me repeat this, and now I want you to think if this is an irrelevant term today or if this is true today. People have replaced the love of God with the love of self and the material world, appearing to be religious but denying the power of the true gospel. Do you think this summarizes our days well? These last days in which we live? Well, it did also for Timothy. It did also for Paul. It did also then. And the author is telling him how to guard his own life and his conduct and his speech and, his, and, and the gospel and how to treat others in the midst of a life in a world that demonstrates the love of all these other things but God. What should we make of the avoid such people command? Because this is important. If we took this at face value, anyone who loved, loves self or money or pleasure, I mean, he says avoid such people. If we took this at face value, then we should have to remove ourselves from probably everyone in our life, including ourselves. <laughs> Sorry, I can't get out of bed this morning. I can't hang out with myself. It would mean the church next week would be very small, and I wouldn't be here. What should we make of this? It means that, that in the context of Christian relationships, in the context of the church, at some point in the Christian life, you will need to say, as a follower of Jesus, this is what it means to love God. And this does not love God. This is a life, and this is a belief, and this is a habit, and this is behavior, and this is a hope. This is what it means to be a lover of God. And at some point in every church, we must say, this is what it means to give ourselves faithfully to the gospel truth and to live out its implications in our life. This is what it means. At some point, we have to say, no, I will not give to that. No, I will not embrace that reality. Because this is what it means to embrace the gospel. This is what it means to be faithful. And this is what it means to be unfaithful. At some point, Paul is saying, Timothy, you have to know that there is no neutral. So guard the gospel. Endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. Do not be afraid of what it would mean to you to, to know the truth and to know God's word and to believe it with all your life and to live out its implications. If these struggles are, are present in your life, you know, the love of self and money and pleasure, if you're a, a narcissist, a materialist, a hedonist, you should know that it's not merely an issue of needing behavior modification or changing your attitude or your life, but it's an, it's an, is, it's an issue of what you love. It's an issue of what you worship. It's an issue in, 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 in what you find your hope. It's an issue of worship, and worship is always a matter of what we love. And the love of God is, is a holy and completely different way to live. And what, what Paul is telling Timothy to do is he's telling him to, Timothy, you must live a completely different way, an utterly different way. And all who trust in Jesus are called to live in a completely different way. And it's a life that's not characterized by a confidence in who we are and what we have or how we feel, but in a confidence in the work of Jesus for us. Christian righteousness means that a person has true hope and not what they have done and what they've accomplished and the record that they have kept, but in what God has done for us on our behalf. It is the only thing that saves. It is the only thing that saves. It is the power of God. 
So what does this look like to live, to, to live in this love, a lover of God lifestyle? The hinge of this teaching is, is the simple word. And that simple word is, is, is however. However is the word I want to bring your attention to. You, however, in verse 10, and the hinge of this passage is here where he's been talking about what it looks like to, to love all these things and to have misguided loves, but he says, you, however. Have everyone, has anyone ever asked you, hey, what, is it, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or what does it mean to know and to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Has anyone ever asked you that? I hope that they have. Have you ever, however, have you ever replied with this? Watch me and I'll show you. Maybe not. Oh, you know what? I think I got my pastor's uh, email in here somewhere. Let me, let, me, uh, let me send it to you, and, and you can ask him. Or let me, uh, you know, let, me show you, let me show you God's word, or let me uh, recommend a book for you. What does it mean to, to love God? Well, I got a friend who really does that well. Why don't you go hang out with him? Have you ever said, watch me, and I'll show you? That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. You want to know what it's like to love God? Watch me. Watch my life, watch my conduct, watch my beliefs, watch my speech. If you've never said this, you're not guarding the gospel in your life. You're not living biblically. Watch me correct with gentleness. Watch my, watch my conduct. Watch me engage as I teach and correct and remember what I say. Watch me handle scripture skillfully and rightfully and carefully. Watch me not be a hypocrite in my life and, and in what I say. Watch me rightly divide the word of truth and not sway from its, its teaching that is often unpopular in whatever context you're living in. Watch me trust in the Lord. Watch me remain steady. Watch me in my faith in the midst of countless controversies. Watch me nay, nay. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes lyrics just pop into my head and you were thinking it. Oh, make it stop. So I want you to, as we close here, I want to think about loving God as a lifestyle, now that I've got your attention again. <laughs> to love God as a lifestyle, because this is, these loves are present. The seeds of these loves are present in all of our hearts. Admit that, that sinful desires are sinful. Oh, I don't love money. I just really, I really feel important the more that I have. And the more that I have, the more I feel loved. I don't love money. You're saying that that being adopted into the family of God is helpful, but not as glorious as being rich. Yes, Jesus dying for my sins is great. But just a little bit more money is just going to put the cherry on top. I don't love myself. I just really get angry when I'm mistreated by others. Right? I, 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 I trust in who I am and who God says I am. But if you tell me that I'm something I'm not, well, then I'm never hanging out with you ever again. You're angry because your desire to be seen as good in the eyes of others is more important than your confidence in God's righteousness uh, for you because of Jesus and who he says you are. Admit that, that when these habits and these habits in your life and the feelings in your life, and that when they, are, they, they expose a love for something that is not God, call it out as what it really is. It's evil. It's sin. It's not personality. It's not, well, everyone's doing it, and I'm a little better than what other people are doing. It's a sinful desire. 
And it stems from a love of something that is not God. Repent of a divided heart. When we admit this, we, we repent of a divided heart. Man's nature, as John Calvin says, man's nature, so to speak, is a continual factory of idols. You ever feel that way? Like, God, I'm just like churning out all these things to love but you, and I'm constantly doing that. Save me from myself. Close down that factory. Like, stop the production line of just all of these things to love and to worship. Martin Luther said, to grow as a Christian is always to begin again. And this doesn't mean that every time that a person is saved over and over again. It doesn't mean that every time you repent, you go to the altar call, you accept Jesus into your heart again for the hundredth time. But it means that we grow in our faith, not by progressing to a higher level of faith or salvation, but by applying the doctrine of justification by faith over and over and over again. Oh, this sin is in my life, and I turn from it, and I turn to you. Not to a better version of myself or turning over a new leaf. I turn to Jesus, who died for my sin, promises life, and empowers me to live a life of obedience by his grace. We are accepted in spite of who we are, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect work. And lastly, form habits of sound faith. Most of us are, most of our reasoning, if you admit it, is is just knee-jerk reactions, right? We'll either act on, on what we think is right or we'll act on a result of, of biblical reflection. And most of us will just act in a certain way based on what we feel at the time is right. The goal is to make those two things the same, of acting with a, with a knee-jerk reaction because of a thoughtful reflection on God's Word. And it's great when those two things become, become closer together, when they're in harmony and the only, thing that, the only way to do that is to become well acquainted with the Bible. The kind of life, a life of love for God is increasingly humbling and liberating. It's humbling because, it, because it, it puts us in our place as we continually made aware of our misguided loves. It's liberating because we don't need to continually be in control of our life or attempt to force God to love us. Our reputation no longer matters to God or to others. It liberates us. We're free. Wow, so I can, I can just, I can love God and, and I can stop working to save myself? Yes. This is a Puritan prayer that I want to I close with as, as we think about these misguided loves and as we think about loving God. They say this, and I hope that this would be your prayer. May I never think I prosper unless my soul prospers, or that I am rich unless rich toward thee, or that I am wise unless wise unto salvation. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and have thy blessing, rather than be successful in enterprise or have more than my heart can wish, or be admired by my fellow men, if thereby these things make me forget thee. Because all of those things cause us to forget God and his love for us and our love for him. Let's pray.